Today's episode is brought to you by the following sponsors, John Webster Pen and Ink. You can find John's work at johnwebsterpenandink.com. And I know you'll be amazed by what you see. He's just incredible, an incredible artist who uh, creates photographic quality images with uh, pen and ink. Uh, amazing work. Go check it out for yourself. Um, take my word for it, of course. But, uh, you know, let me know what you think, which pieces you like. He uh, He's just an incredible artist. So you can find him again at johnwebsterpenandink.com. American Mallard. American Mallard is a startup company, which uh, right now is focusing on painting products. And I have to ask you the question, do you love to paint or do you hate to paint? Or, or maybe you're somewhere in between. And hate hate is such a strong word, so maybe just, just like to paint. But uh, regardless of how you feel, American Mallard is uh, it's a new product. So for your do-it-yourself needs, uh, even for professional painters, American Mallard is an ergonomic brush, or they're creating an ergonomic brush. And it's a... Uh, it's something like you've never seen before. I'm helping my good friend Ricardo Hayes doing some consulting for his company, and uh, you know he's looking to get some feedback on the brush and um, get some testimonials as he uh, as he goes to put that to market. So it's really exciting. I'm uh, really proud of what he's created and and proud of his uh, creative energy and all the things that he is, uh, you know, the things that have come out of his mind over the years. As always, Dr. Mark Holland, he's a longtime sponsor of the show. You can find Dr. Mark Holland at chiroandrehab.com, as well as mystlouischiropractor.com. So reach out to Dr. Mark Holland if you're having back pain, if you've had a car accident, if you, if you sit behind a desk a lot and, you know, we're, we're not made to be sedentary creatures, but uh, often we're looking at our phone, it's just not good posture. Dr. Mark Holland can talk to you about what to do to uh, fix that. So check him out, Dr. Mark Holland. Uh, I'll list the websites uh, on the uh, show page as well for all these. And finally, a uh, new sponsor, Hobocane. Hobocane, who is this, you might be asking? Well, Hobocane is the artist who created the song that uh, brought us into this show today. Uh, that song title is Gold, and uh, just an amazing song. And uh Hobokane is also known as Javier Mendoza. This is his new uh, his new persona for his music, and uh, I've known this guy for a lot of years. He tells amazing stories, and is just just a wonderful guy and just an incredible artist. So check out some of his music. Go once again to Hobokane.com. You can find him as well on Spotify or SoundCloud. You can find me at KenCalcaterra.com, SoundCloud as well for conversations with Calcaterra, Google Play, just. A lot of those sorts of Stitcher, you know, check us out, subscribe, you know, send a comment. Let me know what you think of the show, what you think of the guest. Reach out to them. I mean, very cool people who are creating great things. Today's guest is an amazing storyteller. He uh, his medium is writing and he is a he's a journalist, uh, primarily uh, narrative journalism, long form journalism, as it's also known as. And uh He's a guy that's really passionate about telling people's stories. Uh, we talked in in the uh, in the conversation about who he would most like to interview, and for the most part, he is a, a very topical writer who likes to uh, who likes to write stories about regular people, and often these regular people are doing extraordinary things. So it's it's really fascinating. And uh, I had originally met Tony um, through a class I was teaching at Lindenwood University. And uh, class was documentary film, photojournalism, and narrative journalism. And, and I like to have guest speakers in the class. Um, 
have knowledge in a lot of areas, but uh, it's it's amazing when you have someone that that is that's their main thing, that's their passion. They're they're really uh, you know they're high on their game. They're uh, you know some of the best in the field, and that definitely is Tony. So he was featured in the textbook that we had used in the class called Next Wave, and you can find that uh, on Amazon and. Just a great book with a culmination of stories, and uh, I reached out to him. He was happy to talk to class. We we did this via Skype, and uh, up until this uh, conversation that we recorded, we had we hadn't met each other, and it, it took a while to find the time, you know, in both of our schedules to sit down and do it. And I think there's there's just a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of connection when you're, you know, when you can look at somebody in the eye when you're talking with them and you're you're sharing stories and. Uh, you know, he feels the same connection with his subjects, and I think that's why he is uh, he's so good at what he does. And um, you can find his articles uh, in a number of publications. I have um, I've listed a few on the show description page. So go ahead and go to those links. Check it out. He has recently covered Pokey Lafarge, who is, is big, uh, you know, throughout the, throughout the nation now. And, you know, he makes his home St. Louis, so there's that connection there. And, uh, yeah, just blown away by Tony's work. At one point we were talking about, I couldn't remember the name of it, but uh, it's uh, it's the Pareto Principle. And uh, this is basically, for many events, 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. So this is something I learned uh, by listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast. And, uh, yeah, it's just really cool. Now hopefully I'll remember the name of it because I've, I've talked with various people about this. And, you know, when consulting, talk about that as well. So, yeah, it's just it's really cool. So enjoyed the conversation, and uh, Tony's just an amazing dude, and happy to have him here. Happy to uh, finally have him on the show. And without further ado, here he is, Tony Rehagen. Tony, welcome. Thank you for thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure, man. I appreciate you. you know, a few years ago, you spoke in one of my classes, and I know you're really passionate about writing. What uh, you know, what was it that brought you to the field of journalism? Uh, you know, I, it was just I, I enjoyed writing in high school. Um, that was kind of where I gravitated. I, I went more that way towards uh, like English and literature. Um, and then I just happened. I was growing up in uh, St. Elizabeth, Missouri, which is a tiny little town in Miller County down by, down by the look of the Ozarks. Um, and uh, I went. It's a tiny school. We didn't have a school newspaper or anything. Uh, so I ended up going to Mizzou. And when I was signing up for it, it was like, what do you like to do? And I was like, they have a good journalism school. I'll just do that because English didn't sound like it had much of a future for me as far as you know the actual writing part of it it seemed like a hard thing to get into and so I really just kind of backed into journalism uh but when I got to Mizzou got in the J school I fell in love with it and and realized I was actually pretty good at it so it was it was a total accident really but but yeah and then once I got the bug uh it never let go and Mizzou has a really good reputation as a J school. What what about it that it makes it so great? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because again, I didn't go there strictly for the journalism. I, just, I went there for uh, proximity, and then ended up in the J school. But once I got there, the the big thing is, uh, I, I really believe that journalism is something that it's not really a, a profession in in this classical sense. Like, and that's a debate we actually have in the J school. It's it's really a trade you learn by doing, and that's what the that's what the uh, J school at Mizzou really pushes. That you you work at the Missourian, which is the newspaper there. You uh, broadcast students work at KOMU, uh, the TV station. And so you really get your hands dirty. You really get out there because that's how you, that's how you learn doing it. And beyond that, it was just it was a networking thing. Like it was I've still I still get jobs from people I met uh, through people I met at the school. 
That's fantastic. And yeah, so much of it, I've talked to other guests, so much of it is about the contacts. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, sk- the skill level, of course, you have to deliver when when those contacts come through for you. But uh, yeah, do if you don't, <laughs> don't have the contacts, I mean, it's, uh, it doesn't matter how I'm. No, it's true. How, how good, how great you are. It's Absolutely. just, you know, one of those things kind of stuck in limbo. But uh, so looking at that, so you develop these contacts, you're, I mean, you're writing all kinds of great stories, you know, a couple of titles, it's filled the audience in. Uh, um, Basso Profundo, and I'm probably saying this wrong. Is it, I say like, Profundo? I think it's Profundo, profundo. but yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. You know, how, how a college football standout became an international opera star. Give Nashville the boot. You know, it's about a songwriter who's, who's writing for a lot of a lot of known acts. Um, uh, Mike Tokar's What Happened to the Boy Who Witnessed His Mother's Murder. Uh, the Last Trawlers, which was in the Next Wave book, which we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. Queen of Cuts, Meet UFC's Only Cut Woman. Um, you know, another boxing uh, story. Unique boxing program brings empowerment to Parkinson patients. I mean, you written all kinds of different things i mean how is that experience just looking at life and experiences that i mean how has has that been for you to, to really discover these things uh, that's the best part to me because i'm somebody that has a lot of varied interests like i like new and weird things like i love sports and i love star wars and i love literature and i love politics so it's a great it's great to be uh especially being kind of a general interest writer it's great to kind of just get to move on to different things and, and kind of experience new things. And that's the best part of it for me. Like, and I, th- I think a lot of other writers I talk to are like this, when I'm facing the page, when I'm sitting down to type, that's the worst thing I do. Like I, I hate, I hate that feeling. My favorite part is getting out and talking to people, um, you know, reading about people and, and just going out and experiencing things. And that's what this job really enables me to do, which is the best thing in the world, I think. Yeah, and I, and I love that aspect as well. So sometimes, like editing something, is mm-hmm. like similar to to the writing aspect. The prep really isn't isn't too bad because usually I, I have you know this uh, this interest at that point. Everything's exciting still, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the editing comes along. That's after you've been through it, maybe oh, yeah. a little worn out. <laughs> and so for you, like the creation, the writing comes at that point after you've done all your research and right. maybe some of the general thrill kind of fades just just briefly. For sure, and then that's always a problem is that sometimes when you, especially when you have like a, a sensational story, a, a story that's kind of out there because I've I've covered like drug addicts and like some high drama. Um, by the time you get to the writing part, it's it's almost faded on you because you've lived with it for so long and you've seen it and you've done it that you actually really don't even realize what you have. So you become kind of numb to it because you just, you've just you lived in that story for so long. Um, and so it's good to pull it out. And uh, a good editor helps you do that too. And actually, I, I enjoy the editing part I because it's like putting a puzzle together for me. It's a whole other, like, whole other experience. The worst part is trying to create the pieces to work with and trying to figure out out of all these hours and days I've spent with these people working on this thing, what is important and what goes in this story. Yeah, so just figuring out that puzzle, you you mm-hmm. you know, creating that puzzle, seeing what the picture is, and then and working through it. What what kind of prep do you do when you go into a story? How, how do you it, research and what, what's what's your process in that regard? It's interesting because you wanna you wanna know as much as you can, but you also don't want to know too much. I guess uh, basically, uh, first first thing you do is once you've got a story assigned, once you've got out there, you, just, you you read everything that's out there because number one, you want to learn about it, but number two, you don't want to be treading on ground that's already been mm-hmm. trodden um so you you read all the other other press clippings if there are you know go do a lexus a nexus search for past newspaper articles and learn about that stuff uh and then sometimes i mean if it's and usually what you want to do with the story is you find the right person but then you also try to find that little sub 
that subtopic, that, that larger thing that's going to bring people to it, no matter what it is. And you might immerse yourself. I might immerse myself in some books that deal with it. Uh, for instance, you know, I just, I did a story about, um, a white nationalist group in uh, Southern Indiana. And for that, you know, I actually read a lot about, you know, about the Nazi party, about, about nationalism, you know, some bigger things, even though these guys weren't technically Nazis. And that's, that's kind of approached in the story. Uh, but yeah, you, so you try to immerse yourself in the kind of the culture that surrounds that story too, to kind of get to know things. But, and like I tell a lot of journalism students, uh, the, one of the worst things you can do is walk in and know too much, or at least act like you know too much, because then you kind of put off, you're, you're almost like you're challenging the source. Sources are much more likely to talk to you if they think they're informing you and they're teaching you. And so Sometimes playing dumb and sometimes it's just being dumb. Don't be afraid to ask those, you know, those stupid questions. So sometimes it's nice to go fresh to a story and be like, I don't know anything. Teach me. No, it's a great tip. And I, and I think looking at that similar to, to documentary work mm-hmm. and looking at that, you know, a lot of great documentaries, you have that, uh, that main story thread and then you have supporting material. So I think it's very much, you know, in the same vein. And that's one thing I noticed with your, your white nationalist story uh, you start out, and then you're a character in that story as the interviewer. And then you go in, you're talking to these guys, so you have the um, the element in the Pizza Hut. Mm-hmm. And then then you combine it with, um, you know, a lot of historical type type uh, elements. So uh, you know, like big picture, you know, where it started, what their philosophy is, and then smaller picture, just uh, their. Uh, well, I guess the main part of the main thread is how they're, you know, how they came to be. And what was what was the the main subject of that? Uh, Matthew Heimbach, uh, who was a kind of a, a renowned leader uh, in the, in the white nationalist movement now, who kind of really has come to the forefront. Uh, he was uh, most people would know him because he was from that clip from that Trump rally down in Louisville. He was uh, he was the gentleman who was seen kind of kicking one of the protesters out, uh, and she sued him for for physical assault, but. It's definitely that he was trying to, to remove her from the from the rally. Yeah, that's something. So I, I want to read an excerpt from that. I have a few excerpts that I pulled. Um, and, and this is when uh, you say, so you're in the Pizza Hut, you're talking to them. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about your interviewing style after this or how you dealt with that situation. But, uh, you know, read an excerpt from the from the story. The same conversation could be going on in front of the same Fox News broadcast in any small town restaurant, bar or home in Red America, especially in the time of conservative backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement and widespread distrust of mainstream media. The waitress brings out a couple of pizza and some wings and tops off our sodas as the conversation drifts into issues like immigration against it, Donald Trump for him, Mel Gibson, brilliant director, and how Paoli's Pizza Hut is uh, somehow superior to other locations. About an hour into the discussion, perhaps sensing that I'm either getting bored or not getting the salacious material I might have expected, Parrot addresses the phantom swastika in the room and makes a prediction about this story. This will end up in the final copy. Mein Kampf is a good book that makes some good points, he says. Then what I think is intended as a joke, I was so disappointed. Or what was intended as a joke, I was so disappointed. I read the whole book and there was no plan to kill six million Jews in it. I was like, did they take that part out? No one laughs. Yeah. So what we're... At the time, what we, you know, what was like the sentiment? What were you feeling? I mean, we were, the interesting thing with that story is that you come in expecting the worst. Like all I saw were like, you know, this guy at the rally, you kind of 
have these demons in your mind. So actually, once I met these guys, they were very disarming, and they were actually really easy to talk to. Um, and they were not they were not naive to the process. They knew why I was there, and they so anything they were saying. I mean, like the guy said, this will end up in the final copy. Like they knew what they were doing, and knew mm-hmm. what they were saying. Um, and with that story too, it was it was so it would have been way too easy to paint them as just monsters. Um, what I wanted to do in that story is show them for what, who they were, um, but also not give them too much, you know, too much credence and let them run away with the story, but kind of call them on it. And like throughout the story, that was kind of the, I wanted to make it more of an intellectual debate, but also kind of show these guys as they were, which is basically that they have these big ideas about this white ethno state, about a place where, you know, white people live by themselves autonomously away from a federal government and away from all these globalists. But they broadcast a radio show out of the laundry room in their trailer. They, they're, you know, they're they're suffering from a lot of a lot of you know the the blue collar problems of Middle America that that have given rise to to Trumpism and kind of this resurgence of the alt right. So you know, I mean, you got to show them for what they are, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you know, if these guys want to take over the world, they're probably going to have to get out of the Paoli Pizza Hut to do it. So you want you wanted to show show things for what they were and. It was just a really natural, a really natural interaction with these guys. It was interesting, like going into it. You don't expect, uh, you know, uh, or maybe you have some preconceived notion of what Paoli is and the kind of town, and maybe it's like some broken down uh, industrial town. You know, it's a rust belt, uh, like a place in Pittsburgh that's just uh, abandoned buildings. But then you paint the picture, and when we realize that Paoli is, it's a tourist town. It seems. Uh, you know, really beautiful. They have some some sort of resort. Um, there's just a lot there. There's a lot of diversity, and these guys are kind of this like small island right. within that. And I found that was compelling for this particular story. No, absolutely no. And I, I've got I got into that trap early in, in my career, and a lot of people do. A lot of young journalists do, um, where you want to get into like the gritty. Like I did a story about this uh, meth addict, and. You know, I, I talked about his hometown, about how there was meth problems, and I did not give enough side to, you know, the good parts of the town, and the townspeople were outraged, and, and rightfully so. I mean, I was, you know, I was in my early 20s and just getting out to it, and I, while I stood by everything I saw, I was there, I did the reporting, everything I said was ac- was ac- accurate about the town. I'm from a small town, too, and that's that's one of the things you see a lot now with all these kind of coastal elite media organizations sending you know paratrooper reporters into the midwest to see who who these trump supporters are to see what's going on and you know you know how it is and i'm sure everybody people listening who live in missouri and, and around the midwest know that i mean it's a joke i mean it's they don't they come in and they act like they understand things when things are nuanced here like mm-hmm. i mean the the difference of politics between you know st charles county and, and the city of st louis are, are polarized difference but so it's not you know it's not just one big red state it's a lot of different little shades in between uh so i really wanted to be sensitive to that story in this story um because indiana i used to live in indianapolis uh so it's kind of a second home for me anyway and um i really wanted to do that community justice as, as to what it was uh and it was interesting as you said because they had a bunch of people that were standing up saying everyone's welcome, including the white nationalists, mm-hmm. which really provided a weird argument. You know, how do you how do you deal with that? Are they really welcome? And how do you where do you draw the line between being inclusive and in, trying to not include something that's dangerous? Yeah, right on. And, and I think one of the things that's compelling about these stories and that really does paint the picture is the detail. And just even in that little excerpt, just talking about filling up the sodas and you know delivering the pizzas, uh, it's, you, just those little details really allow the reader to connect. 
And I think that is what, to me, what's really fascinating about what, I guess, the term narrative journalism. Um, and I think that's why it's so important because it's not just the little, you know, we get so many sound bites in this day and age mm-hmm. and we get these little stories. And so often, you know, I'll pull something up like going through social media and read the story and the way it just ends, you know, I'm expecting more, but there's just this, it's like this little blurb. It starts getting you into the story. You, you know, you, you, you want to know more and then, uh, it's just like, boom, it's, it's done. Mm. So yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think, uh, it, it allows us as readers or just as people to fully understand someone, those, those little blurbs, we just get enough of, of it to, I don't know, it may be, maybe what's confusing us all. We don't, we don't really have, you know, we can't put ourselves in someone else's shoes with, with, with that type of journalism. Right. You need context. Yeah, absolutely. No, and what's interesting and, and just, and I hope it's not me and my journalism bubble, but it seems to be this way and it seems to be this way in the business that, uh, whereas people, a lot of people would think that with the evolution of like phones and tablets that people are looking for shorter things, that's not been the case at all. A lot of publications that I work for have said that most people download these long 3,000, 4,000, even like 10,000 word stories to their phones and they read them on their devices. They read them online. That everybody thought that the, the, this, you know, the emergence of online was going to be the end of print journalism, that, that, that nobody was going to have the patience that, you know, millennials don't read this stuff. They do and they, they have a huge appetite for it. And so it's really you've seen a, a resurgence in it which i think is really encouraging because they want that context you're right they want to they want to understand things more than just the quick you know nightly news thing where they have like you know two minutes to show you something you can't really understand an issue or wrap your head around something in that amount of time and, that, and that's the thing what i found was was interesting to me in the, the class i was teaching and so it was a mixture. It was uh, documentary film, uh, photojournalism, and then narrative journalism. So they all, you know, go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, one of the stories in the Next Wave book that we had read uh, was a story about Britney Spears. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, all those stories are amazing. It was just, and I read them many times. But this really allowed, uh, a lot of the students came in and they had that preconceived notion of who she was. But then throughout the, the painting of the story, and this was another one where the, the author was one of the one of the subjects, one of the characters in it. And, and you get an idea of what Britney Spears is dealing with. And just kind of just all the you know, just the parasites that were in her circle and uh, you get a better idea of how a big star can have that meltdown. Mm Because most people think, oh, you have millions of dollars. What are you complaining about? But, you know, in that particular story, it allows us to realize just how crazy life can be and stressful and just what leads to those type of things. Yeah, it really humanized her. Yeah, it was a great story. Definitely. So what are some stories that you read growing up before or maybe in journalism school or now that inspire you? Oh man, I mean, there's so many classics. Um, there's uh, one of the best profiles ever is uh, Tom Junot, who now works for ESPN, the magazine. Um, when he was writing for, he used to write for GQ and for Esquire, but he did a profile of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. That I mean, the opening scene is Mr. Rogers naked in a locker room. I mean, there's the revealing, and it was just so tender and so humanizing uh, that that's always stuck with me. Um, Obviously, the one of the one of the greats that everybody goes to is uh, Frank Sinatra has a cold by Gay Talese, uh, which was an Esquire, uh, where it was basically a ride around where Sinatra didn't consent to the story, so Talese just followed him around and reported what he saw. Um, and again, humanizing the celebrity, really kind of seeing things and kind of drawing everything back to how much was focused in Sinatra's voice, and he had a cold, so he couldn't sing, and that led to other problems. Um, there is, 
Richard Ben Kramer did a story about Ted Williams, also in Esquire, which is not the only magazine I read, but like just growing up, these were the these were the pillars, um, and humanizing a legend, really showing Ted Williams for what he was, good and bad, um, and you really got a sense, man, this guy is kind of an asshole, but like he, he's, you know, he's a great he's a great guy. I mean, a great man who's mm-hmm. you know dedicated himself to his craft. Uh, God, I mean, there's so yeah, many I think you would have to be some be have have some aspect of you to hit 400. Mm-hmm, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, he was obsessed with it. Like yeah. from from the from the get go, he wanted to be the greatest hitter that ever lived. That was what he always said, and he did everything he could, including you know trampling over people to get there, uh, and which really is an, an interesting you know window into the life of these people who are the greatest at what they do. Is like what what is the cost of that? What is the cost of greatness? What is the cost of dedicating yourself to your profession and to your craft? Yeah, but then then you look at somebody like a Tony Gwynn, yeah, who that strike season, what was that, ninety four, mm-hmm. who at that point I think had a, had the opportunity to hit four hundred, but then that I mean that threw it off, and and just uh, just observing him from television, and around the time he was, uh, I was working down at at Bush Stadium, I mm-hmm. was just working for the Cardinals magazine, doing uh, just like subscriptions and and doing some things with media relations. So I was in college at the time, and that's right around the time he was about to hit three thousand. I remember I was at I was actually at the game where he hit two nine nine nine. Yeah, which was McGuire's five hundred. Right on. Yeah. yeah. So then at that point, and then just the contrast there. So McGuire was a little. Yeah, you know, he was, I don't know, he seemed kind of bitter and just not, I don't know, not want to embrace it. Maybe the pressure, I, I well, don't yeah, know. They, they, I mean, they they were trying to tear him down at the time, too. Yeah, no, McGuire's, because they were besieging him and Sosa. Meanwhile, Gwen was just kind of quietly doing the working man's thing, kind of just quietly going about his thing, like, just get a hit, just get hit an everyday thing. Yeah, but he, Tony Gwen seemed to be the opposite, where he was just like, somebody just had this love for the game, mm-hmm. and he was just so jovial, and... Sure. Uh, so yeah, just the contrast there, where you don't necessarily have to be that hardcore to do it. It's just you know the right. dif- different styles and maybe Absolutely. background. So I, I find it, you know, have to look up that story just to see their background and how all that came about. Sure. So we look at our environment and you know history and things of that nature. It's really I, I think it's really compelling, and uh, I mean, is that what? Uh, Long form journalism, uh, narrative. I mean, why is that important in this day and age? I think it's important uh, for what we were kind of talking about a little bit earlier is that it, it offers the context and it offers, it's really the only, it's, it's really the only medium. I mean, and like documentaries are great for what they do, like really involved documentaries that take time with their subjects. Good because seeing, I mean, it's the truth and I'm, you know, I make, make, I make my living with words, but seeing it, I mean, my picture's worth more than a thousand words. If you ask me, like it's, it's awesome. And it's awesome. Also awesome. When you can marry long form journalism with photojournalism. Um, that's one of the best feelings there is, but there's really it's the it's the only medium that can do what it does uh, because it, it's, books are time commitment and you know I mean which are, are fine for what they are and then these newspaper stories are good to get and and what you get on Twitter and your news feeds are good to keep you up to date on like the the sound bites which are as important as ever this long form medium in the middle is kind of the best of both worlds it offers you the context but it also offers you something that's maybe an hour of your day maybe less than that to read these things. So I, I think it's important because it's still the only medium that does what it does. Right on. Yeah, man. No, no, I dig it because, yeah, you can get through a story in I don't know, 20 minutes. Yeah, if you're on the train or if you're, yeah. like, on a plane, like, that's, I mean, you can just burn through those things and, and you get a t- chance to kind of sit down with something and read it and, and and to move on to something else at the same time. Like, a book is an investment. Like, if you're going to read a book, unless you're, like, one of these voracious people that can read a book in two days, which I've never been, <laughs> um, 
you got to, I mean, you got to invest your time with it. Like, Hey, I'm going to read, I'm going to read about the fall of Nazi Germany. I'm going to be with this book for, you know, a couple weeks. Whereas with a magazine story, you can pick it up and, you know, read it in an hour or so or sitting or a couple mm-hmm. days and, and learn a lot. I mean, that's the thing is that it really, it, it, you learn a lot from, from the well done stuff. Right on. And, and when you talk about merging photojournalism with, with the stories, which I, I that's another compelling aspect as well. And I'm going to use that word a thousand times today. I'm sure. Good. But looking at that, and I love the uh, I love the photo that you had uh, your recent Pokey Lafarge story. Oh, right on. The one where he had his hand. Mm-hmm. The, I think the hand, yeah, hand was out of focus, and then mm-hmm. yeah, it was a great photo that really, you know, something abstract, which I, I think worked well because he is some of what of an abstract character. Um, what? Uh, how do you go about with uh, you know working with a well, photojournalist, and, and how does that collaboration come about? It depends. Uh, unfortunately, now, uh, especially as a freelancer, it becomes a kind of a disjointed thing. Um, like with that, that those photos came after I did the story. The photo, the photographer was actually at the story with me, which is a nice thing. But it's becoming increasingly rare. Um, I know uh, Jamie Guy, who's a great photographer who lives in Minnesota now. Um, I worked with him on the last trawler story on uh, the bluegrass story I did for the Bitter Southerner, um, and uh, a peaches uh, peach story from uh, Atlanta Magazine. And that's where we actually, he and I went together, you know, hand in hand. I mean, we were, we're close. We're not quite that close. But, uh, you know, just to go down and explore things together. And it's also, it's like two reporters that I was taking my notes and he was taking his pictures. And so the, the story that resulted was very close. Like it's everything I talked about. It was, you know, pictured in those images. Um, because that, that that's a huge thing when you can connect with, with people that, that imagery, because even as a writer trying to describe these things, it's impossible to get it perfect. And if there's a, you know, a reference right next to it, and it also helps draw the reader to the story. You learn real quickly when you get to a magazine that you want to be nice to the art directors and the photographers, because they're the people, they're the ones that make people read your stories. Nobody, I mean, even, even anybody who's not an obsessive reader sees that big block of gray text and they're just like, it's, it's, it's a job. Even if you want to do it, it's a job. And even when I'm reading, sometimes it's a job like the New Yorker, which I love. It's a block of gray and it's, it's, it seems like work. Um, but a great design can really make you kind of forget that you're working. And and that's one thing that I loved about the next wave book was at the end they had, uh, you know, I, I don't know, some, some were longer than others, but uh, they had an, you know, like a behind the scenes type excerpt where the author was talking about what compelled them to write the story or, you know, how that came about, how they received the assignment, uh, you know, maybe the research aspect. So, I mean, they were all different. Uh, so, I, I mean, I definitely recommend that for any budding journalist out there. Uh, and that's one thing that was part of your your excerpt and that was working with the photojournalist and kind of really painting that whole picture. Absolutely. So it's super cool there. And when it was also about, uh, and what, one great thing about photojournalists is that they, they have stories. I mean, you guys go out there and you, you, you know, you shoot, you just shoot things cause you want to build your portfolio and, and you want to, you want to just kind of, I mean, you, that curiosity draws you. And so like you guys come across stories like that. And so, I mean, as a reporter, that's gold to me because, sitting at my desk typing these things out I, I want to get out there too but like some, somehow being a photographer especially being the good ones like you just kind of have an entree into these people's worlds and it can be a great it can be a great introduction for a writer 
Yeah, and it's it, you know I, I just love telling pictures or telling stories with pictures, mm-hmm. and and I'm one of the things with podcasts I want to increase my vocabulary, but it seems I never <laughs> no get around worries. to it, man. So it's just one of those deals that you know I love to tell stories in the writing ex- aspect. It's just yeah, just I just think I'm more visual, so that that works for me, which is kind of cool. Absolutely. But uh, and, and wasn't it? And and it's been a few years since I read that, but wasn't it? Did didn't the photojournalist kind of bring you to the story? Oh yeah, no, he was okay. like, I have, I, I was driving. He was literally like, I was driving down in, on the coast of Georgia. I saw these shrimp boats. I was crossing a bridge, and I was like, I need to see what they're doing. And so he went. And basically got on this boat with no, I mean, no job. I mean, there's uh-huh. no, there's no contract. There's no, he was like, I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to have my camera. And the, the, the shrimping family was like, yeah, come on. And he was on the boat. I think he was on the boat for like a week, uh, which was crazy. It almost sounds like he was like Shanghai, but, um, <laughs> basically, uh, yeah, he came back with these photos. And so basically he came to, to me, uh, at the magazine he was like, look, I know this guy here are these great pictures, you know? And I was like, yeah. So he called, he called the, the shrimper up said, hey, can I bring the Atlanta Magazine, which is what I worked for at the time, can I bring them down and we'll do a story? And they're like, yep. And so I did the same thing. He shot with me and it was a great story. And it it was kind of custom made. And that that things working out that that well are, are rare because especially like nowadays where I'm not working with a photographer as much, but um, when it when it clicks like that, it's, it's just really great. That's that's outstanding, and and then so looking at that, uh, I mean, how often do you present a story to? Uh, I mean, is that as a freelancer, are you still able to do that? Oh yeah, no. I've, uh, as a freelancer, I'm doing it more often. You're okay. pitching constantly because when you're a staff writer, you have kind of a cachet with the editor. Um, I mean, it got to the point where, like in Indianapolis, I, I worked with my editor David Zivin, who's in Chicago now. Um, it was got to the point where it was like, hey, I want to do a story about meth in Indiana. Be like, go, and you know. You get that kind of rhythm where the editor trusts you. As a freelancer, you got to do a little more legwork. As a freelancer, you got to you got to like do a little. I, I I even do some reporting ahead of time. Even contact the source and talk to them a little bit. Say what's the story, and then you write out a pitch um, because that's that's all you're doing. And I mean the, you know, I mean for every. 10, 15 pitches I send out, one gets a, a, a yes. So you're, you're doing that even more because that's kind of that's kind of the currency of the business is your ideas because that's what you really bring to the table because there's no, there are, it's a very rare thing where an editor is going to come to me being like, hey, I've got a story for you. It's almost always me going to them saying, here's a list of like six stories that I'd like to do for you and then them saying like, you know, number three, let's, we could do that and here's how many words I want and that's how it is. So if I'm not pitching, I'm not working. Gotcha. All right. Uh, yeah. So we have we have that in common. Um, looking. Let's just get back to the next wave book. I've talked about that. Um, so I, I guess it's time to let the let the listeners know what that is. Mm. Um, so the book next wave. It's a collection. Uh, what they listed as America's new generation of great literary journalists. Uh, how did that come about? How how did you become a part of that? Um, you know, my work was kind of out there, and uh, it was just picked up by the editors of the book, which uh, Walt Harrington, who's a legendary journalist, uh, worked a lot for the Washington Post, and Mike Sager, who's also a legendary journalist who did a lot of work for Esquire, most uh, most prominently, but he does a lot of freelancing now for for other publications. Um, and they were putting together this book um, with Mike Sager's press, um, and they just they they, they picked. They just picked the story kind of out of the out of the water and contacted me, and I was like, "Absolutely, I'd love to have my my story ex- excerpted in this book." Um, but the idea was uh, all journalists under forty, um, 
and so uh, a bunch of us, and actually some some of the people I know, it's a very small world, so there were a lot of people I knew that were actually also picked. Um, it probably helped that Walt Harrington is also a Mizzou alum, so I got that little Mizzou nice. cred there, which never hurts. But uh, but yeah, overall, it was just they, they kind of picked it out of the ether, which was very flattering. That's cool. So yeah, from that book, I had because um, one of the the class I taught the. Uh, uh, the head of the department or the guy that hired me had he just picked that and I just amazing and uh, that really is what really had me focused and just I guess I fell in love with this genre and uh, and looking at that I also had in the class uh, Todd Frankel at the time mm-hmm. he was with the Post Dispatch I think is he with the Washington Post now either, I think he is with you the know, Washington Post now That's so right. he he came into class and spoke had you via Skype and then had Michael Cruz as well via Skype yeah so, he's yeah. working for Politico now yeah he's he's, he's great. Yeah, yeah. So he was he was fantastic. I'll have to track him down at some point. Maybe he'll want to talk for this. But yeah, just amazing. And at one point, I had thought they had said they were going to do like a first person because uh, the stories in this particular version were third person. Right. Right. No, they had mentioned that at one point, and I think they recently have done one um, that are all female journalists. Okay, interesting. Um, so uh, I know they, they're kind of working on these different anthologies, which trying to get it out into the curriculum because a lot of the books actually, Walt Harrington had. had uh, edited a, a book that was the standard for, for decades. And so a lot of that had been done a couple of years ago, um, or not a couple of years, a couple of decades ago. Uh, so they, they want to kind of refresh that pool for, for, for young journalists. Yeah, it's very cool. So great project and definitely recommend that. I'll see if I can put a link on the, uh, on the show description as well as some links to your, your stories. Thank you. But do you consider yourself to have a signature story or if there's only one story you could have somebody read, you know, what would it be? Uh, it's probably a hard one because it's like picking your favorite kid. Right. Well, and uh, it kind of kind of changes a lot because it's, it's interesting because, like I said, I like a lot of various different things. Um, one thing early in my career I got kind of known for was a lot of like doom and gloom drama stories. Uh, oh, man, I tell you. Um I did a story about uh, a guy in Terre Haute, Indiana, who had been released from prison after being sent away when he was 16. He was 42 when he got out, I believe, um, for a murder he didn't commit. Uh, he, I just followed him around for like the first few weeks after he got out. Um, it's called Free Man. Um, that came out in 2009, I believe, um, for Indianapolis Monthly Magazine. Um, that's one I'm really proud of still that worked out right. Um, the trawler story as a, it, it's it's hard. I'd, I'd say the trawler story is if you want to kind of get to know what I do, it would be that story. It'd be like, because it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a business story, but it's kind of a family story and it's kind of an experiential story, which is what I really like to do is I like to be the fly on the wall. I like to kind of, to be, to kind of experience things and not do everything over the phone or everything in like, you know, closed chambers, even doing the courtroom drama, which I've done before. It's like, I'd rather be out there on the sea, like experiencing this stuff. So I'd say that those stories kind of are indicative of kind of what I'm aiming for. But yeah, how, how much time did you get to spend on the on the boat with them for the trawler story? I think it was two days, and okay. I think I mentioned in that that uh, epilogue in the next wave book that uh, I wasn't going to spend another hour on there. Like it was just I got I had my story. I was I wanted to get off that boat. I was ready to swim to shore if I had to. Which, <laughs> I, I would have died definitely, but interesting. So, so looking at that, you have a great body of work. What was the, uh, you know, what was the first story you wrote as a professional? First story I ever wrote as a professional. Um, I don't even remember. Uh, the first story I ever wrote for publication was a Mizzou volleyball preview for the Columbia Missourian. 
Um, that was the first thing that I ever published. Um, it was just a tiny little little story about the preview of the Mizzou, uh, the upcoming Mizzou volleyball season. Um, my first magazine feature was a story about Dan Weldon, uh, the uh, IndyCar driver who died uh, a few years back in a crash. But uh, I, you know, I flew down to Miami uh, and talked to him and watched him race because uh, it was for Indianapolis Monthly, and in Indianapolis, the IndyCar is still a very big thing. Um, and so that that was my first uh, that was my first magazine feature. If you could interview anyone alive or dead, who would be like that dream interview or dream story? Because, you know, the interview is part of it. But, uh, you know, who would you like to, you know, capture a moment of their life? Man, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I mean, probably some. It, it's hard to say because I, I don't. I, your, your first thought would be go, to go to a celebrity, but. I'm not a real big fan of celebrity journalism. Um, I'm, 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 let's put it this way. I'm a great fan of people who do it and do it well. Like, uh, you know, like Stephen Roderick and Tom Juneau and Michael Pattern. Any people, there are people that do great celebrity journalism. And I, I, I like, I read those stories. But uh, Tom Chiarella, another great one. Um, Chris Jones. I mean, I could just go on and on. Um, but uh, the, my, the best stories and my favorite stories have been stories where the topic kind of comes first. Like that Freeman story. I wanted to do a story ever since watching the movie The Shawshank Redemption where they had Brooks get out of jail and what it was like to be in the world after, you know, being in jail for so many years. I wanted to do that story. And so that, I kind of find, found the guy that, that fit that um, and it turned out to be its own thing. Um, so it's hard, it's hard to say uh, topic. So, yeah, I don't even know. It's just I, I kind of take things as I, I encounter them. So, Definitely. I, so, so what topic have you not covered that maybe you would like to like to explore a little bit? Oh man, um, topic. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I know that's hard to say because I mean it's kind yeah. of what, what I jump to back and forth. Uh, and, and sometimes it's the story finds you. Yeah, yeah, a lot, and, a lot, a lot know, of times that's the case. Yeah, projects uh, find you, and it's just like you're in the, you're, I guess, right place at the right time, or right. maybe the the right place at the wrong time, or you, you know, whatever that situation is. I, I mean, different things, and it just it just gravitates. Sure. Or you're talking to an editor, or like the photojournalist. Right. Well, so. and. and I would say one thing that has kind of obsessed me uh, is the, this kind of caretaker, uh, the caretaker aspect. And there are a lot of great stories already about this, but about people who either through marriage or through taking care of your parent or taking care of your child, that they're kind of their, their lives are upended because they have to care for somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by that subject. So that, that may be something I, I'd look into. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting in topic that I think a lot of people can relate to. It's happening so, yeah, a lot. Yeah, right on. Uh, and at one, at one point, I think during the clash, you had said that you were interested in, uh, you know, as a subject matter, uh, Carlos Martinez, the pitcher for the Cardinals. Did you ever get, uh, did you ever write a story on him? I have not. No, uh, I have, I've not been able to. It's bad. Yeah. He, he is definitely, uh, I'm a little, I'm a little bit like sending this out. Like I, I worry about people like getting the idea. Um, <laughs> I mean, we can scratch that. We can scratch this if you want. Oh, see, I think I'm being paranoid. I'm being, it's, it's a silly, isn't it? Am I being silly? Yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know like the Cardinals magazine have some friends there. I think they've, they've done some, you know, feature. I mean, they have to, I, that, that to me is probably one of the hardest things. Cause if you, if your team doesn't change and you kind of have the same story, right? although I mean with the players, but then you have the history and I think they do a good job of mixing all that up. Yeah. Yeah. One and it's a story that that you kind of want to do on its own on its own merit with 
without the team oversight you want yeah, to do it yeah. with like yeah you don't have to give like you don't have to give the nuts and bolts of of you know what you want the story to be that's about because i'm sure so many people that's true have have covered that or with with ball players so yeah i mean true. you'll have your unique aspect that you'll bring to it that's true that's if if i was going to create a documentary on him you know i guess i would see something a little bit different or some of my experiences in life would would kind of uh, kind of blend over to that story or some things that I find important. Sure. No. I, yeah. No. I, I definitely, as far as stories that that I'd like to do, I think Carlos Martinez would be a really interesting character. I'm kind of fascinated by him. Uh, another person I'm fascinated by that I don't think I could do the story uh, would be Michael Stipe, lead singer of REM. Oh yeah. I find I just find him endlessly fascinating and somebody that really has you don't get to you haven't gotten to know yet. He's been in the in the spotlight for so long. But I've not, you know, Tom Juno did a did a story about him, but I'm not sure. There's been it's been so long ago that so much has happened since that it would be interesting to to revisit that. I think. When did he retire? Do you recall what? what I, I mean, I don't. It was gosh, it's because, been a while. Yeah, because one of the and I don't remember his name, but uh, one of the band members had an aneurysm and, and died, if I'm not mistaken, or at least was incapacitated to the point where he couldn't play. You know, I'm I'm not sure. I, mean, I, don't, I don't recall. But uh, yeah, Michael Stipe now has him and. David Letterman yep. have that similar look. The old man beard. <laughs> That's interesting. And did you ever, uh, when you were in Atlanta, did you ever see those guys? Did I never did. Ever... No, I uh, I went to Athens a couple times, uh, and obviously they're legendary there. But I've never, yeah, no, it never, it never came up. And baseball, cause you you have an interest in baseball. That's uh, big time. Yeah. How, how long? When did you become a fan of baseball? Oh, way back. I've been a Cardinals fan since since I can remember. Growing up in Missouri, listening to Mike Shannon and Jack Buck over the radio. Yeah, Mike Shannon, he's he's classic. He's yeah. I haven't read many stories about Mike Shannon. I mean, just, just hearing him on the radio though, he has such a storied history as a player yeah. and then having the illness. Well, I did I did a profile on him uh May like was it last May? It was last May. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, for St. Louis magazine. Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't uh I didn't see that on Is that on your website? It should be, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Open mic. Yeah, it's uh yeah, it came out May 2016 um and I I followed him around for a game uh uh, when he was broadcasting a game in Jupiter, uh, spring training, and it was, yeah, it was fascinating just to kind of get behind the yeah, scenes. He's, he's a fascinating guy. So when I was working up in the press press box, he was always holding court, and of course, he had oh, everyone's yeah. attention. And yeah, he was, oh, his, yeah. his stories Super are curious. amazing, yeah. and just the it's the people he's dealt with, and because he did play, and he's you know he's so knowledgeable, his delivery's funny, but he's he's so knowledgeable that yeah, he gets. Um, these great guests when he had live at Shannon's, which uh, they don't they don't do that show anymore. No, because yeah, but, Shannon's uh, is not. Well, yeah. Besides that, I think he's just kind of you know in his you know in his later years, he's kind of kind of cutting back on some things. He's only doing was, home games now. Yeah, yeah, it was just such a great show. I, I don't know if he Mike Claiborne's uh, doing yeah, like a, he was there. Essentially, he's doing that kind of version of the show, but That's doesn't right. have Mike Shannon, who was just so colorful. Yeah, but well, uh, yeah, the thing about Mike and this was in in the story as well was that. He's kind of the everyman. He's the guy, like, when you listen to him, you feel like you're drinking a beer on the porch listening to the game with him. Like, he's just the guy. He's just kind of the everyman. And, and he has those St. Louis roots, too. He grew up in St. Louis. So he's really he really is one of us, I guess you would say. Definitely. At what point in your career did you ever have a wow moment where you looked and you said, man, man, I made it. I'm doing, you know, I'm living my dream. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting how dreams change because that that's one thing I tell journalism students this too, and it's it's impossible to know, and it's why it's impossible to understand when you're there trying to go for your career. But like your priorities kind of change. Like I, I was in college too, and I was like, oh, I want to you know win a national magazine award, I want to win a Pulitzer, I want to work for this and that, and those goals are still kind of there. But it's at one point, and this was happening actually like last year. I've been freelance for about 
uh, a little over two years now. And I was on the beach in uh, at Sapelo Island, uh, island off of Georgia, working on a story. And just like three days earlier, I was in. I had been in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, covering like a crashed ice uh, event. And I was just like, this is this is my dream. Like to be able to kind of like just travel around and like jump into these different worlds and really see all this different stuff. That's so. I, I guess that's when I realized that I had made it. Even though if you had told twenty-one-year-old Tony that was what I consider making it. I, I'd consider him a loser. You know, things just, things kind of just, you know, priorities change and things shift. And, you know, now I'm, I'm just really appreciate the actual work itself. And that's something that freelancing has done for me is that it's, it's not as much about the reception and what people think about it. It's about actually the work itself, which has been really refreshing. So I try to, I try to tell young journalism students that, but I completely understanding that it, that doesn't make any sense at that age because you want all the other stuff. You want the accolades, mm-hmm. you want that, that career ladder. And it's interesting how we, when we get a little older, we've, we've, uh, gained that experience mm-hmm. and then how perspective is, is different on life than when we were 20 years old. Cause one question I'm starting to ask everyone is like, what's your definition of success? Yeah. So looking at that definition of success or what uh, really fulfills us now, I mean, one thing I always, you know, just telling a, a visual story, and then I realized part of now it's just having that connection with people. And I guess it was always there, but not realizing. And then so now I have this format of podcasting. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's quite interesting because there's just so many interesting people out there that I've had the privilege of meeting and talking to. And then now there's this format where it's like, wow, why don't we record a conversation and we'll talk about what you're passionate about. And uh, and it was just cool with uh, having to teach that class. I met some really cool journalists, read some some great work and just felt really connected to that work and just felt something emotionally. So it's just like, wow, that's a person that I want to feature on this podcast. And then it makes it so easy because I mean, a little bit of, you know, research that I did, you know, I read, read a few stories that I hadn't. And then the questions, it was just like, yeah, this is not work. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. That's that. I think that is the definition of success is like, is when work becomes fun. And, And I mean, there are a lot of people that never get to experience that. And I'm, I'm just, I feel extremely fortunate that I, that I have and that, and that I realize it. That's the thing too. Like it's not looking back on it. I realize it as I'm doing it now. So now I'm taking advantage of every opportunity to, to do these things. And it's interesting how uh, I'm putting together a little, little documentary piece. It was a show I started developing called it's hard rock life mm-hmm. and just the resources to put something like that together. It's just, I couldn't make it a full show, but just to have that little excerpt, I mean, it's still pretty cool. And one of the guys, a uh, friend, his name's Paul Schaffrin. And he had said that, and he said, if, uh, you know, if, if I could look back that 21 year old punk, you know, what, what he's saying about me, you know, I'm now in four, you know, at the time he's in four bands and, you know, I'll smack that punk in the mouth. <laughs> right. And yeah. so, you know, it was really cool how, you know, that's another situation of somebody looking back and saying, wow, you know, back then I would probably said this about myself, but wow, look what I've done. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's just really cool and yeah, it's just, just amazing to, to really, to be able to embrace that. Yeah, no, totally. No, I mean, meet people and make these connections. And like you said, life is a collecting experiences and I'm, that's literally my job is to collect experiences and then write about it, which is the sucky part. But then, then you get to edit it and see it out in the world, which is also kind of cool. It's, there's a certain vanity that goes there too, which I'm sure you're familiar with too. Like it's, it's nice. It's nice to see your byline out there too. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> that I'm doesn't little, go away. Yeah, yeah. With the podcast, it's kind of like um, I'm looking at it somewhat warts and all. So I don't, uh, you know, the story is what we create here at this moment, and so it's not like I'm trying to necessarily, 
you know, I don't switch things around or put things in any different format to to make it you know more than what it is. So it's kind of cool, and it's just a little bit lazy in that fact and not wanting to to edit and put all that time into it and just sure. have this something that's raw and real. Not too raw though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. So yeah, and I make some adjustments and all that. I'm a bit of a perfectionist still, but what ingredients are are key to a good story? Uh, characters are huge. Uh, I mean, God, every now and again, and I'm sure you you know this too. Like, you get a person who's just a great quote. Like, they're just like everything that comes out of their mouth, like, is just gold, mm-hmm. and you just can, you just want to publish it. Uh, when I was working on that Pokey Lafarge story, uh, Catch a Secor, I think that's how you pronounce his name, the Old Crow Medicine Show guy. I mean. I, that, I'll keep that tape forever because just the things that would come out of his mouth were just like, well, I think my favorite quote from that story was is that, uh, like, looked like he jumped out of a birthday cake on the 4th of July. I mean, just like the way he would talk <laughs> and you just meet these people that, that talk like that. So great characters are always a great story. Um, but the big thing is you want, you want an arc. You want, you want some progression. It's, it's, uh, you know, about figuring out, what this person's challenge is and how they go about trying to meet this challenge. You want, you want to kind of solve a question, solve a problem, but it also has to have this kind of undercurrent. And ideally this kind of comes through without having to be said that it has something that's universally relevant. There has to be like a, a theme or a topic, um, whether it's love, whether it's, you know, revenge. Yeah. That underlying like that. theme. That's that other, one thing right. that I really pointed out in the class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those, those are the things like, I think good characters, uh, a, a nice narrative arc and and then a good theme that those those are the three main ingredients I'd, I'd say definitely cool um and then looking at, at structure is when you go into it i mean because no story is the same no yeah. do, do you feel that after you've experienced it that your structure kind of uh, you know kind of just develops or that you discover it or are you really like uh i mean some stories are they easier than others always always some stories are way easier than others and this is a job too uh and I'm not complaining, but it's the job that, I mean, and I talked to people that have been doing this for years and years. You do get better as you get older. And uh, as a writer, like, you know, I'm 38 right now and I feel like I'm just now kind of hitting my stride. Like, I do feel like it's something that's not a game for the young. Um, and I, I, again, another thing that's hard to tell young people, but like, it's like you haven't lived enough. To be a writer, you have to live a lot. You come to a new story every time and it's like you've never done it before. Like, this is the most humbling, one of the most humbling jobs I can imagine in that you can be, I talk to people that have been doing it for decades and they're like, they still will come to come, come to sit down to write a story. They have no idea how to do it. Um, there have been times when something has happened. like, this is my lead. I know it's my lead. And there have been times when I know this is my ending. And like, literally like there was a story I did about this, uh, man living with ALS where we were in a boat on the Gulf of Mexico. And I was like, this is my ending. And I started writing the ending in the boat. Like it was just like, this is it. Mm-hmm. But eight times out of 10, it's no idea. And in fact, sometimes you never, I, I turned in a draft on, uh, last, I guess it was last, no, it was, it was yesterday or Tuesday. These, like, yeah. Days run together yeah, at right? this point. Yeah. But yeah. So basically I turned it in and I just knew that this, I'm going to have to rewrite this story. Like I'm going to meet my deadline and I'm really sorry, editor, but like, I mean, and I didn't say this obviously cause you never know, but like, I know I'm going to have to rewrite that story because the structure is not right. Yeah. Um, so getting your structure nailed down and I've, I've become more disciplined in that regard. Like I outline now, um, at least generally, even for short stories, even for like a thousand word pieces, I'll like do a general outline of what I need to, to accomplish. But it's, it's, it's humbling every time you sit down mm-hmm. in front of it, like the structure, the structure is key and it is elusive, but there's also, it's, it's one of those things that there's no one right answer. There are, there are literally like many different ways to, to tell a story. So 
that's a little bit comforting, but yeah, it's, it's a humbling experience. Yeah, some stories, but I, I mean, I find that the really good ones start in the moment with the subject or the character and then, then giving the background information, but others, they, they throw some of the background information first to get you on topic and then you meet the subject. Uh, I mean, there's this, uh, everything is different. Always. I think it's how you, you know, somewhat how you feel at the time as well. And, uh, you know, it's good that they're not, you know, there's no formula because I would just, that would get so, so old. And it, that is true. That, that it keeps it exciting. And it, it definitely, it definitely, it can be a benefit if you put a good spin on it. But I, just coming out of the experience, it's humbling as hell. And sometimes an editors be like, and it, that's what a great editor does. Uh, they look at it and be like, this is where you should start like down here. Like they'll see it in the story. Like this is, this is where it is. And so that's what, that's what the great editors can really lead you in that regard. Like you need to start here. Yeah. And that's cool to have that collaboration. Always. I thought it was very interesting. One of my favorites of yours is the Leo Mazzoni story. Oh yeah. And and I love how you started that. I mean, cause you, uh, you know, want to spoil too much, but hopefully, uh, uh, you know, need to give this information to get it, get to hook them. Sure. But, uh, you know, one thing about him that I learned from the story, I didn't, I knew the name and I, I knew a little bit about him just being a, a, you know, general fan of baseball and being pretty knowledgeable. But, uh, you know, one of the things that you incorporated later in the story was like his kind of nervous tick when he was in the dugout. And then you started to, so, so people that know of him, uh, that, that know that when they start reading your story, you start with like the click, click, click and you're, mm-hmm. it's a nervous tick. And then you lead into it's him in a rocking chair and his den watching the game. Because at that point it was eight years that he had been out of the game. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, right there, it's just like, I was hooked and you're like, okay, wait, wait, why is he in a rocking chair? I know this guy, this is, you know, maybe one of the most storied, uh, pitching coaches in the history of the game. Uh, or at least in that era, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with that wonderful Braves pitching staff. And uh, going into that, it was nice to background talking about how he, uh, you know, had them um, do their bullpen sessions, you know, two instead of one in between starts. And they thought that that was kind of crazy. And then really there was maybe a little better longevity throughout the the league. And then, and then another thing, that you're throwing both sides of the story that he wasn't without injuries. Uh, so, so yeah, you, you, you'd painted this picture and I'm just hitting a few highlights and I, sure. I definitely recommend that, that listeners read that story, especially baseball fans out there. Yeah, no, it was a great story to work on. And then I remember when I wrote that lead, cause that was one of the, that was one of the few times where I was like, this is definitely the lead. And the, my editor even like it wrote back, who's a huge baseball fan, Glenn Stout. This was for SB Nation, and he wrote back, like, he gave you a gift with this lead. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, it's, it was, it was the perfect <laughs> metaphor. It was, had to do with what he did when he was his nervous tick, but it also was like the old man in the rocking chair yeah. just said everything. It was just like, okay, this is, this is the lead. And it's still at that point, he was, uh, you know, as a coach and having that knowledge, it's like, I can still do this. Mm-hmm. And at one point, you had, had wrote how he was sending out, maybe it was like tweets or something or, or text and it's just like hey i'm out here hey phillies uh you know you need somebody yeah uh, through it, a tweet it could yeah. be me and uh yeah it's just it's kind of sad somebody with that knowledge that still has a lot to offer doesn't have that opportunity right um, no interesting an interesting epilogue to that is that once that story ran i got an email from an owner of a minor league baseball team somewhere in mexico who wanted me to put him in touch with leo i'm like <laughs> i sent it to leo he's like well how much are they paying like just in, t- in typical leo fashion but yeah, it was it was a fun story. He's a great guy. Yeah, interesting. And that was through, uh, you were living in Atlanta at the time. I was. I was living okay. in Atlanta. I just started. It was that was actually the first major feature I did as a freelancer. Uh, and so he lived up in like southern uh, South Carolina, which was real close to Atlanta. 
And so I just drove up there to kind of spend some time with him. And basically, I mean, <laughs> you show up to his house at like at like eight o'clock, and he's like, "You want a whiskey or a beer?" I'm like, <laughs> it was, it, he was just the typical like baseball guy, and he was just super honest. Just he and Mike Shannon would get along great, I think. Like they they seem they seem like the same cut from the same cloth. That would be an interesting conversation. That know, would be a old school guys because he they were they played in I think relatively the same era. Maybe Mazzoni was like the fifties or late. No, 60s. Leo Leo was a little bit younger uh, than than Mike. Oh, he was. Mike okay. played in the sixties. Uh, I think Leo kind of came up in the sixties, and Leo never really made it. Never made it to the majors. Leo uh, was a was a minor leaguer, career minor leaguer. I'm, I'm pretty sure. He was like Tony La Russa, mm-hmm. you know. So one of the I guess you'd say brilliant minds of the game. Yeah, he really, was a student of the game. Yeah, really wasn't. Uh, a great player and never mm-hmm. had any success so yeah those those are interesting story those those type of guys so w- what advice would you give your 20 year old self it's interesting because i'm not sure that's good advice but because but my 20 my year old self is be like don't don't worry about so much and actually i mean i won't say don't try it so hard but don't don't sweat so hard like i, I people ask me this and it's, it's I would have skipped more class. <laughs> like I would have, I would have like, I would have studied abroad, number one, but I would have done more stuff. I would have tried to, I, I wouldn't have been worried about making that C a B or that B and A. I would have been like, you know what, this is fine. I'm learning my stuff, it, especially in journalism. And again, this goes to like the, it being a craft more than a profession. Your GPA doesn't matter. Like I've never, I don't even have a resume anymore. Like, and it, I stopped using, cause your clips become your resume. Um, it's all about what you can do it, and your GPA and your honors and all that crap doesn't matter. I mean, and I, I'm sure it does in some professions. They, they look for that GPA, they look for that stuff, but I would tell them just to kind of chill out and just not, not worry so much about the, the rat race and just kind of do experience a little bit more stuff. But I mean, who knows if I'd have listened, I might've gone off the deep end and ended up just, you know, <laughs> drinking and smoking myself to death. So who knows, but that, yeah, it would be, don't, don't worry so much. Right or not, that's that's advice that uh, I think a lot of people would give their younger self, because it seems like everything is so catastrophic at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got the you got these kids now, and I mean, I, I feel sorry for uh, kind of. I'm just outside the millennial bubble. Recent story on millennial parenting, notwithstanding, uh, but I'm definitely kind of an older soul. Um, I, I think the kids these days have a, a hard time, and they, they they get a hard time about it, and it's like. And I talked to some of my friends who are doing it. I'm like, do you, do you remember yourself as a kid? Like, do you remember yourself? Like, how, what your parents said about you? Like, this is the oldest cycle in the game. And I I refuse to be caught up in it. And I mm-hmm. refuse to, like, bemoan the, the young kids and all their stuff. Because this generation especially, like, and this is another thing I tell students, is, like, they got a, they got a bum deal. Like, they, 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 they basically entered this game that was promised to their grandparents where, you, oh, you go to college, you get a good job, you'll, you'll pay off your student loans, and, you, and you, you're, you'll retire at 55. Like, no, like that's, that's long gone. And yeah, that's, not, no that's not their fault. Now it's maybe 70. Yeah, yeah that, and I was like, that's not their fault. That's our fault. And so yeah. they're, trying, they're trying their best to make things work. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I'd like, I, I definitely cut the millennials a break, and I refuse to get caught up in this cycle of bitching about the kids these days. Yeah, well, it was always like in the '60s. It was the the uh, baby boomer generation or the World War II generation. I will it's bitch like, about baby boomers, but yeah, no. you know. But but what are these kids? Well, you know, so it, it is. It's just like a constant thing. And uh, all right, when I did this, blah blah blah, and you kind of lose sight of that. Like, uh, you know, I'm getting to that point with my niece and nephew. Like, oh wait a second, I need to I need to chill out a little bit with that. Totally. But uh, but also college back then was so much. 
I wouldn't say more accessible, but it was more affordable. Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely. Now it's just like, yeah, you have a hundred grand in loans. Back then it was like, you could get an education for like five or 10 grand. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember my yeah. student loans. I paid them off. They were like 15. I had some scholarships, but yeah. like, yeah, 10 or 15 grand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was I mean, that's, a, it's a lot of money, especially to look like, at a 22 year old, but I mean, it's not insurmountable. Definitely. Yeah. The, the, the game has changed a little bit. Um, any uh, any books that you gift or recommend? Mm. Oh, man. What are books I read lately? Um, you know, uh, a great book by a, a dear friend of mine, so I'm going to plug it, but uh, came out last year, or a couple years ago, uh, Grandma Gatewood's Walk by Ben Montgomery is a great book. I would recommend anybody reading it. It's about uh, this elderly woman who walked the Appalachian Trail and just kind of and this was back during, I believe, during the 50s. It's been a little while since I read it. But um, just a great piece of reporting and making it real and accessible. Um, gosh, more books. I recently just read a novel by Thomas Mullen, who's an Atlanta writer, uh, called Darktown. Uh, it's a murder mystery involving the first black police officers in Atlanta. And it's a great window into that era of segregation um, and into the politics of the time. Also, in just a, he's a really good uh, kind of crime and, and mystery novelist. Um, one of the best at it. Uh, have you read Eric Larson? He, I have. Uh, I have The Devil in the White Devil City. Devil in the White oh, yeah. City. Wow. That was, that's a great book. That's also a great book. Uh, yeah, and that's a good piece of uh, like a historical narrative. Oh, it's a time capsule for sure. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's so amazing how you get the historical elements, but then you're you're definitely in the narrative, and you're in the home of H. H. Holmes, and yeah, it's yeah, it's fascinating, and yeah, really dark, and yeah, that's definitely one I'd recommend to anyone. Well, and one that I that I definitely want to read that a, a writer that I never miss uh, is is David Gran, um, who's a New Yorker writer and is one of my favorite writers. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention you mentioned stories. And this wasn't growing up, but like the Lost City of Z, which is there's, now there's a movie about it. But uh, he wrote this story for the New Yorker and it ended up being a book um, about this explorer in South America. I mean, he's he is just he's so good. Um, and his new movie, uh, his new movie, his new book uh, is Killers of the Flower Moon, um, which uh, it just came out and I'm, I can't wait to read it. It's uh, it's about uh, I read an excerpt of it about uh, how the kind of the government was conspiring to to remove the Osage Indians down uh, around Oklahoma to get to get to their oil at the turn of the century. And it's just fascinating. Just a great reporter, great writer. I recommend reading anything he writes. Outstanding. It's good. I'm going to have to put it like the book club of uh, of conversations with Calcaterra because totally. that's, a, that's a new question that I, I, I stole from a guy named Tim Ferriss who wrote the four hour work week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just yeah, I've been listening to his podcast and it's cool. And, you know, he kind of takes from others. So it's nice to you know do that to pay homage and like great question. Why not? Yeah, no, it is a good um, question. So how can uh, I have a few other questions, but how can people connect with you or read your stories? You know, what are what are some of the best ways to, to reach out? Uh, Tony com is my website. Um, T-O-N-Y-R-E-H-A-G-E-N is in Nancy.com. Um, that's where I try to keep it up to date and I, I need to update it. Um, I'm on Twitter at T. Rehagen. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a regular contributor for St. Louis magazine. So that's where you can kind of see my, my regular stuff. Uh, I'm a contributing editor there. I uh, also do a lot of work for Indianapolis monthly. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work for Pacific standard, which is a great publication uh, that comes out bi-monthly, um, kind of a social justice politics type of place, been a great outlet. And I've been doing a lot of work lately for uh, ESPNW, which is a, another great 
organization to work with, um, especially the W side of it, because they're they're really passionate editors over there. And so the W is like writing or what's uh, the W's for women. It's, it's, oh, okay, it's, women. It, it covers, uh, it covers female athletes and, and people. Okay. Gotcha. So it's, it's just great kind of, and they really kind of focus on those kind of untold, like the, the cut, the cut woman from UFC that I did the story on yeah. the crashed ice thing, which is something I'd never even heard of until I got into that. Yeah. That yeah. That's a, the, the photo that, oh, uh, so awesome. that's on that article looks amazing. So that's, uh, that's one that I'm going to go back and read. Yeah. No, and she's nuts. Cause she's, she's a, she, her, her regular job is, and for, for those of you who don't know and I didn't know, Crash Dice is a basically it's like it's like roller derby meets uh, motocross meets like it's it's just insane. It meets ice skating, speed skating, where they race down these like huge ramps of ice. Uh, and and the woman who does this, her her part that's a part time job because it doesn't it only works on the weekends, like six races a year. Her full time job is being a stunt woman, like so for movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. So she's just adrenaline junkie. She's fascinating. Right on, man. Yeah, it's interesting the things that we're coming up with, like the sporting events. Oh, yeah. Like, all right, we've already seen enough baseball games. We've seen enough roller derby, so let's combine it with bobsledding and, you know. Totally. (laughs) It it seems like like, uh, Red Bull, who sponsors Crash Dice, is, like, behind a lot of it. They're just like, what's the most effed up thing we Mm -hmm, can do, you know, and we're just going to do it. Uh, which is cool, I mean, because, I mean, it's it's fascinating people, like, and all of the X Games culture, too, or, you know, like, Let's just make a sport out of that. Yeah, right on, man. Right on. So, uh, where, where do you see yourself in in ten years? If I'm still upright, um, <laughs> probably just probably just doing the same thing. I got yeah. I got two little kids, uh, so uh, being a freelancer has also really enabled me to really be a bigger part of their lives. That's which cool, is fantastic. So, uh, hopefully, ten years. Hopefully, I'm doing the same thing and still yeah. able to still able to do it. As you and I were talking, as fellow freelancers, you have your your feasts and your famine. So, but. Uh, uh, so hopefully 10 years from now, there's still an appetite for it. And I think you see what you see is, and I, I don't want to be wrong about this, but, uh, I think the tendency now is it's more of a freelancer's game. Whereas, you know, even 10 years ago, magazines were kind of replete with staff writers. Now it's become, we can't afford to keep you on staff to do this stuff. We'll freelance. So uh, hopefully the, the economy of, of journalism kind of stabilizes to some, to at least to the degree where a freelancer's market really emerges and they learn how to pay us better. Um, and, and there's some publications which are great for that, but a lot of it is. And that's the other advice I give young young writers is don't do what you do for free because there's all kinds of temptation to do it. They're like, oh, you get you this exposure, you get these clips, mm-hmm. and it's a tough thing to do, but get something out of it. Yeah. At least make it a story you want to do because like uh, kids these days, you know, they're writing for nothing. And it's... If you if you're good at it, never do it for free. And it's a tough situation because you're you're bill you know you you have to pay your dues, right? But at what point does it become that you know it's I don't even know the word right now, but it just gets to the point where and then people still when you know I'm sure as a seasoned veteran as you are here in the writing world that there's times where people are like hey you know get some exposure and you're kind of like yeah I've been there you know yeah, I, I don't I'm happy with my portfolio and you know if it's a, if it's a story that you're really that that really grabs your attention or like you know pulls your heartstrings you're like i have to write this oh yeah i, yeah. I get that but that still happens. still expenses or something there's got to be some kind of payoff yeah because if people don't put if they don't have any skin in the game i don't think they really appreciate what you're giving them no and you mentioned like, the value of it yeah you mentioned advice i'd give my 20 year old self that'd be another part of it too and i think a lot of a lot of kids are like this even though they might be outwardly confident is like have some real confidence because you see this in like in all kinds of negotiation which has also been kind of fascinating uh, I did this little thing for GQ about negotiating, uh, which really made me think about it. 
is that like we just we just bought our our third house and like how much easier it was to negotiate this time and and, in selling a house for the third time Mm -hmm. it was just like because and it's not because the market's that much better it's because i know what i can can and cannot get and it's it's something that comes with experience but i i I say that i use that as an example because you know your life as a as a as a freelancer isn't anything as a negotiation Mm -hmm. like and the key to negotiation is know where your line is, where, where, how far you're willing to go and know what you're worth. And that's the big thing. And I think that's an advice I would give myself as a youth. And that's what I should give advice to all the youth is like, you're worth something. Your skills are worth something. Don't sell yourself short and yeah. go into these negotiations. Like, and cause every, like I said, everything is a negotiation and, and don't get cheated. Yeah. And don't be afraid to say no right. or to Walk like away. pass up on something. Cause yep. then usually something else will pop up. Always. Uh, and I find that, and, and I need to find out, it's a, like Christini's rule, or that's another thing I I've found heard. from Tim Ferriss. It's at uh, 80-20. Mm-hmm. And if that one job is going to, you know, that 20% of what that income is going to be or whatnot, or 10, or it can slide, but it's generally 80-20, then uh, it's going to give you 80% of your headache or stress you out or throw off, you know, your general vibe or your, you know, spirit, then it's almost like, yeah, it's not worth it. Totally. Um, so yeah, I'm finding that now where there's a lot of things. It's like, could I use the money? Yes, but you know what? This is what they're asking for is just crazy. Yeah. And you know the money's not quite there, and it's just even like you know it's I call it a suicide mission. So it's like if you had to go out and somebody say, all right, write this story. You know, I need it in a couple hours. Well, I haven't talked to the subject, or you know something that's right. completely that that you know you're not going to be able to deliver what you can deliver. It's like all right, I'm going to pass on right. that. Yeah, no, I think that's some, that is something with coming with age and experience is that that ability to say no and that 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 lack of fear. Like, don't be afraid to walk away because nine times out of ten, as you know, like when you when you walk away is when they were like, well, wait a minute, they were like, oh, I'll give you another week. Like, yeah, yeah. like I'd say maybe not nine times out of ten, but at least at least yeah. half the time they're just like, no, 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 wait, wait, we'll, we'll, we can negotiate like always. Yeah, right if, on. It's like buying a car. Like, all you got to do is get up. Mm-hmm. Always get up when you buy a car. Yeah. Always get up. Definitely, definitely. So you're wearing an Aerosmith shirt. Is that a, is that a favorite band? Uh, I, I like Aerosmith. I like I like the old Aerosmith. Uh-huh. Put it that way. It, it basically pump before that. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. Like back to their '70s stuff. Yeah, I could do without the the get a grip and everything that yeah, came yeah. after that. Um, but yeah, mostly it's just a shirt. Um, I'm a I'm a big music fan though. I've, uh, I like writing about music. I was a musician uh, in, in college and still play a little bit here and there. Um, so, but yeah, no, it's just yeah. Yeah, what are you listening to anything? Can you uh, any oh. any new acts of anybody? How do you like? Have you heard the new Pokey record? I yeah, I have. I, I I love it, and I, I I'm really anxious to hear what uh, what other people's reaction are because that this kind of was kind of that focus of that story was yeah. that it was this kind of a, not a new sound. It's still a retro sound, but it's not as retro. Like whereas most of his stuff was swinging like 30s jazz, <laughs> this is much more 50s, 60s soul backbeat type of stuff. So I really enjoy it. Uh, I've been listening a lot to. Uh, the Double X is that how you even say it? I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, the, uh, a band that's been around for a little while, but they just had a new album put out. Run the Jewels. I've, oh I've yeah, been loving, yeah. I love stuff. Have you had a chance to interview uh, Killer Mike? No, I wish I wish story? I had in Atlanta. Uh, that would have been a great story. He's I was coming to Lou Fest, so maybe is, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, they're gonna be at Lou Fest. I've talked to St. Louis Magazine, see if they'll get me on the phone. I would love to talk to him and LP. That would be awesome. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I just it seems like they're like the voice of this, yeah, voice of the resistance now of this political. They're, they're, they're just the right time and the right right movement um and then i'm, I'm listening very much to uh the moana soundtrack which has been fast fantastic yeah my, my daughter's juan miguel yeah oh yeah yeah amazing yeah 
Or Lynn Miguel. Lynn, Lynn Miguel, Miguel, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. my gosh. Yeah. So, but it's, it's been great. And it's been, it's a nice thing that I can get my, my girls to listen to. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And then I, I read the uh, Hamilton book that inspired him. Oh, really? Was it yeah. good? Yeah, it was great. Nice. And so I had that on the shelf for a couple of years. I picked it up at one point, and then that's listening to or hearing about that uh, that musical. It's like, okay, I need to see how. I haven't seen it yet, but I wanted to get into what he was reading and this the source material to see how that translates. So hopefully by the time I see that, uh, see the musical, then I'll, yeah, well, I'll I, still remember the book. When I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm a junkie for those political biographies. Biographies. Yeah. I just uh, finished a couple of months ago the uh, the uh, the American Lion, the the biography of uh, Andrew Jackson. Just his. Oh, years I just read uh, which, which one did I read? Uh, it's on the shelf there. Yeah, it's not the American Lion, but yeah, that was a that was a good one. I just yeah. picked up on like on eBay from an old library. Or yeah. the library was purging some books. Totally. Yeah, he's a fast fascinating guy. Definitely. A lot, with a lot of interesting parallels to what we are living in now. Yeah, yeah, it was quite quite interesting. So yeah, yeah great subject matter there. Uh, Last question. So how, you know, with your body of work, you know, when it's all said and done, how do you want people to remember you as a writer? If they even do remember me, um, I, I, I would. Or how do you want people to reflect on you now and currently when they read your work? Yeah, well, as somebody that that that, that gives them something that, yeah. that's not just about. And there, there there's a lot of times and it, it's as a younger writer, there's a tendency to want to push it towards the Dickens, to push it towards the flowery language. And it's it's interesting because you talk about like writers like uh, Kurt Vonnegut, um, who is somebody that you read Slaughterhouse Five in high school and you're like, this is pretty good, but you don't really understand the genius of the writing until you've gone through that. Where after you've gone through your flowery, uh, pushing all these adjectives and adverbs out there phase, to where you're like, no, real writing is Hemingway. Real writing is Vonnegut. It's the spare sentences. It's, it's the it's the economical stuff. And with journalism, I think a lot of people lose this too. They these writers want to get into long form because they want to. They think long form is just a newspaper story with a bunch of more adjectives, and it's not. Like, I, I still want people to get information from what I write. I, I still want to be like, yeah, this is pretty writing, but it's also giving me what I want and giving me a message and giving me information. And I think that gets lost sometimes. And I'm. I'm sure editors pull their hair out about it because people get, and as writers, you do, you get married to these beautiful little sentences that really don't mean anything. These little details, you mentioned details. There's a difference between detail and telling detail. Like you can describe the scene, but if it it has no reflection on the overall movement of your story, it's worthless. You need to divorce yourself from that. So hopefully I I hope people see that I, I try to be a practical writer that, that I want it to be pretty, but I, I want it, I'd rather it be effective and I'd rather it be clear and concise because that's what I'm that's what I'm going for so that's that's how I'd want to be be reflected upon fantastic well thank you for the energy that you put into the the stories that you write the energy that you brought here today I really you know it's been a fascinating conversation and I really appreciate the time thank you thank you for having me if you break down and the world won't make a sound stay focused It's too late to turn back now You will make it If you decide you will Take a step forward To get over the hill You have to let it
says it all the score It's not your time to fall It's not your time to fall To fall To fall It's not your time to fall Thank you.